Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about the 1939 comedy drama movie, The Women. It was directed by George Cukor, and he appears to have been basically the only man involved in this movie. It was based on Claire Booth Luce's play called The Women, um, and was adapted for the screen by Anita Luce and Jane Murfin, whose chief task was to make sure that the film was acceptable so that it would pass the production code in order for it to be released. It stars many, many women. It includes mm-hmm. a cast of 130 people, but the stars are um, Norma Shearer, who plays Mrs. Stephen Haynes, Joan Crawford, who plays Crystal, Rosalind Russell, Paulette Goddard, who we've seen in The Great Dictator, Joan Fontaine, mm-hmm. Virginia Gray, and Ruth Hussies, who we also saw in The Philadelphia Story, Virginia Wheedler, who we saw in Meet Me in St. Louis, and Butterfly McQueen, who played Prissy in Gone with the Wind. And the gossip columnist of the time, Hedda Hop- Hopper, plays a fictional version of herself in a like a very small role. So the movie is set in glamorous Manhattan at the time when ladies lunched all the time, but before it was before ladies who lunch was a thing. Primarily in Manhattan, but also there's a sort of a third part in Reno, Nevada, where eventually they all obtain their divorces. The movie is has a lot of commentary about the pampered lives of these rich women who have nothing else to do besides talk about the men that they are with or want to be with or used to have been with. So, so the movie, as far as I could tell, and we can talk about this, takes place in four distinct parts. One in in Manhattan, uh, focusing on this small group of friends that is sort of centered around Norma Shearer's character, Miss, Mrs. Stephen Haynes, and Rosalind Russell's character, Sylvia Fowle, who are cousins. Um, they have a small group of friends who get, have lunch together um, and also go to the same spa gym, salon, um, which is where... <laughs> Sylvia hears from the manicurist, who is giving her the newest exclusive nail color, Jungle Red, that uh, Mary's husband, so Mr. Stephen Haynes, is having an affair with a perfume counter girl named Crystal, who is played by Joan Crawford. So Sylvia, trashy. So trashy. Sylvia is a gossip, shares the news with all the friends, and eventually sets Mary up with the same manicurist so she gets... So she hears this news about her husband's infidelity. There are scenes that follow with Mary's mother, Mary's daughter. They go away to Bermuda. But it is only when uh, Mary decides to go to Reno to get her divorce that we, I think, move to the second part of the movie, which, again, we can talk about, that takes place on a ranch where chaos and drama ensue. And several divorces. And there's lots of plaid. Yes, and lots of plaid. Um, and then the third part takes place about 18 months later when Mary's daughter, who's also named Mary, visits her new stepmother in the bathroom. While under- she's taking a bath, not creepy at all. Yeah, in a transparent tub. <laughs> and and gets the sense that Crystal is having an affair. Sylvia arrives, also gets that same 
sense. Um, and then the fourth part takes place about six months after that at a reunion of the all of the, the women who met each other on the way to and in Reno, where little Mary tells her mother that her father is unhappy. Mary does some scheming um, and runs off to a late night party with her friends, masterminds a takedown of both Sylvia and Crystal and manages to win back her ex-husband in the process. That, that about covers it. Yes. Also, don't you love that the perfume counter girl's name is Crystal and that's still considered a trashy name today? Yes. Yes. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> but yes. I mean, don't write us listeners named Crystal, but... Yes. There, there is a stereotype about that name. Yeah, it's not the most refined name. Do you have any trivia about this movie? Yes, I'm. I, you stole a couple of them. Oh no! But that's okay. So you mentioned that there were 130 roles in the movie, all played by women. The animal actors also were all female. All what? the dogs and horses were female. Yes, that's dedication. Um, even the, I know the works of art in the background all depict the female form as well. Basically, all of the top-level MGM female stars were in this film, except Myrna Loy and Greta Garbo. Although, oh my God, Myrna can you imagine Loy- this movie with Myrna Loy and Greta Garbo? <laughs> well, Loy was considered to play Crystal. No, but they, yeah, I think I don't like that idea. I'm glad she didn't. In it. I'm glad she wasn't in it. There were two. References in the dialogue to the word bitch. <laughs> in case you didn't pick up on that. Um, um, one is when Miriam has just been bitten on the leg by Sylvia. Oh, right. And she says, be careful of hydrophobia, which is actually rabies. And the second is when Crystal says towards the end, there's a name for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society outside a kennel. Yeah. <laughs> Such a biting line. Oh, also, they didn't use stunt doubles for that biting scene, and Rosalind Russell actually did bite her pretty badly, <laughs> and she had a scar the rest of her life. Oh my god! That's hilarious! <laughs> I mean, that's going method. I don't know if you saw this, but F. Scott Fitzgerald has an uncredited uh, writing role with the screenplay. Oh, I didn't see that, no. Yeah, I think, I mean, he. I don't think he did much of it, but he wrote some, like, in the early stages. Did they not credit him because he was a man? Maybe. Or maybe they just didn't like his work. <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> they did bring in women to punch it up later. That's right. So, George Cooker told Rosalind Russell to play the part of Sylvia, like, basically ridiculous. <laughs> and Done. they were very... Cons- yeah, she was... She was my favorite part of this movie. Yes. Um, They were concerned that it could hurt her reputation as an actress, this role, because her scheming and gossip broke up a family with a child. So they thought the only way to keep it from hurting her was to just go super broad and act crazy. Russell said later, Cougar was 100% right. I was frightened to death, but from then on I did what he said and everything that came to me from the women, namely my reputation as a comedian, I owe to him. So she wasn't she wasn't doing comedy before this and this is huh. how she got into it. I mean, this her, the character in this movie, this is sort of veering into discussion, so I won't say too much about this, but her character in this movie 
reminded me so much of her character in His Girl Friday, just in terms of the, like, comedic timing and the sort of ridiculousness, but also the, like, fast-talking, smart, you know, super intelligent, you know, Well, see, scheming. that's interesting, because I thought she was so different from the character <laughs> in His Girl Friday. <laughs> That's I funny. mean, the comedic timing and all, I agree, but, like, I mostly know her from His Girl Friday, and she was so, like, clever and likable, but in, like, a sly way in that, and in, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, it felt very different, like, she just was, like, a caricature, which I think shows what a great actress she is, that she could do, yeah. like, she can do anything, basically. Yeah, totally. Maybe we need to watch His Girl Friday sometime soon. <laughs> yes, another Cary Grant movie. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a long it time. It has been. It's been long Maybe enough. Maybe we should, like, basically just every three movies do a Cary Grant movie. This is a great idea. <laughs> Nobody at us. <laughs> <laughs> so... George Cooker also helped Paulette Goddard with her role. And she was known for being, like, so beautiful that she could basically hypnotize any man. Like, she could just go into any room and, like, men just fell all over themselves for her. But he didn't want her to play this role like that. And he said, look, look, kid, just forget those female tricks of yours and try (laughs) to give me the best imitation you can of Spencer Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) And actually... I didn't read that until after I saw it, and I was like, I see a little bit of Spencer Tracy in the way she acted. Yes, totally. Oh my god, that's Um, amazing. I I feel like that's a good life motto. Just, you know, add a little Spencer Tracy into your... I agree. And then you could hang out with Katherine Hepburn. Yes. I mean, that's basically why you would do it. (laughs) (laughs) So... The salon in this movie, which I hope we will talk about at length in the discussion, was based on Elizabeth Arden's beauty parlor in New York. And when she saw the movie, she said that they must have based the salon. Like, it it was basically an exact copy of hers. (laughs) I want to see that place because that salon was so ridiculous. (laughs) It made me want to go, honestly, like, get a manicure. I haven't done, I haven't gotten a manicure in ages. Jungle Red? Yeah, Jungle Red. Of course Jungle Red. <laughs> so timeless. We talked about George Cooper recently with Gone with the Wind. He was fired as the director of that just a month before filming for this began. Oh. And that's why he was able to do this movie. Oh. Hmm. So I don't know if you're going to buy a Norma Shearer, but a lot of trivia came up. I don't know if she was considered like a diva or what, that she was like very insistent on having top billing and would not let the other ladies go into parties or she had to be the one to make the last entrance like, right. when they did publicity tours. And then also that she didn't want people listed as at the same level, given equal billing. I am going to choose to um, interpret that as her business acumen rather than her being a diva. Because she was married to a producer. <laughs> and oh. after he died, she... <laughs> She was, I'll, I mean, I'll, this is spoiler alert, after she died, she made MGM give his estate the money that was owed to him. And of course, she was his estate. So, oh. yes. Like, she threatened, yeah, I wondered she threatened to, like, go tell the story to Hedda Hopper. <laughs> it wasn't Hedda Hopper, but it was Ooh. some, one of the other, like, gossip columnists, where she was like, I'm going to go tell them that you're trying to stiff a widow. And paid her all of the money Good that for was her. owed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, 
One thing that did not come up in trivia that some people might expect is that, at least from what I read, that there there weren't a lot of tensions among the actresses. Like, they had all these big stars in this. Joan Fontaine wrote about making this movie in her autobiography, and she had nice things to say about every single person she worked with. Wow. And she was you the know, last surviving woman from this movie. Yes. So it's like the inverse of the actual movie where they're yes. all, <laughs> all fighting each other. But do you want to talk more about Norma Shearer since we were on the topic? Sure. So Norma Shearer was born Edith Norma Shearer in 1902 in Montreal. She eventually became known for playing spunky, liberated ingenues. And apparently a, a reviewer said that she was the exemplar of sophisticated 1930s womanhood, exploring love and sex with an honesty that could be considered frank by modern standards. Um, she has been celebrated by some people as a feminist pioneer, and including that she was the first f- American film actress to make it chic and acceptable to be single and not a virgin on the screen. So hmm. she's a badass. Off. Off screen and on. So she grew up in Montreal. She um, had a sister and a brother. Her her parents were mostly supportive of her early interest in both music and then in vaudeville. Um, she decided when she was nine that she wanted to be an actress. But her mother was a little bit concerned. Norma's physical flaws would jeopardize her chances, which, watching this movie... You might be asking yourself, what physical flaws could you be? Yeah, that's, that's what <laughs> I was going to say. I was like, she's beautiful. Uh, apparently when she was, you know, an adolescent, as many of us are, she was dumpy with broad shoulders and sturdy legs and, like, hands that are normal looking. But she also has sort of smaller eyes than is usually seen on screen. And up until a certain point in her career, she had, her, her eyes appeared to be crossed because one of her eyes was, had a cast in it. Her right eye had a cast in it, which is a phrase okay. actually that I had never heard before. I had to look that up. It just means that it wasn't, it didn't look like she was focusing on the same thing. She sort of took all of that in stride and was, you know, as she would later become on screen, a very ambitious liberated person uh that's basically what she was like uh in real life you know very driven and very interested in having a career her parents divorced when she was 14 and her uh, mother moved her older sister and norma to a a boarding house and then um eventually they moved to new york which was the center of uh movie making at the time she initially had an interview with um, the Ziegfeld Follies, which was disastrous. He, Ziegfeld apparently called her a dog and criticized her crossed eyes. Oh um, my gosh. What and then, a jerk. I know. And then she realized that there was, or she learned that there was a casting call for Universal Pictures. Um, who They were looking for people to serve as extras. And so she and her sister showed up and, you know, waited in line and ended up you know, as the casting director was, you know, walking down the line, picking people from the from the beginning, she coughed loudly, and when the casting director looked at her, she stood on her tiptoes and smiled at him, 
apparently it was obvious that the casting director like knew what she was doing but appreciated it and cast her as you know the eight extra she managed to appear in several movies as an extra though dw griffith said she would never make it as an actress because of the cast in her eyes and because her eyes were too blue he resolutely believed that she wasn't gonna become a star when she was about 19 years old she spent most of her savings on um, consulting with a doctor who first gave her some muscle strengthening exercises that allowed her to um, successfully conceal the cast in her her eye for long enough periods of time that it, it never really showed up on screen. Um, and she apparently spent lots of hours in front of the mirror exercising her eyes and um, oh, practicing, like, holding that her... awful. I know! She did a little bit of modeling, and then, you know, towards the end of her first year in New York, she received fourth billing in a B-movie titled The Steelers, and then she got... An, uh, two years after that, she or just about a year after that, she received an offer from Louis B. Mayer, and the producer, Irving Thalberg, had uh, signed on with Louis B. Mayer as vice president and sent a telegram directly to Sheer, to Norma's agent inviting her to come to the, to the studio. So she signed a three-year, a six-month contract and moved out to the West Coast, where she struggled, of course, for a while, and had some screen tests and some smaller roles, and including a role in the movie Pleasure Mad, which was sort of the point where she realized that, like, if she didn't make it in this movie, she was she was done. She was going to have to move back to the East Coast. And so the director complained to Louis B. Mayer, who called her into the office. She, she, she basically was up front with him and said, yeah, I don't really know what, I don't like this director, and he's scaring me, and I, I can't work with him. He, like, flew into a rage and was basically, you know, said, like, if you can't, you know, work with this director, then you don't deserve to be an actor. And, you know, and that sort of, you know, riled up her, her inner drive, and that was it. And she, you know, she, that movie was a success, and um, Irving Thalberg ended up casting her in six more movies in the next eight months. And Whoa. so, and it was that, like, working so much in a short period of time that apparently did the trick. Um, and by the end of 1925, she was carrying her own films and was making a lot of money. She then, you know, tried to keep up that work and trying to um, compete with Greta Garbo, who was the new thing. And she went to Irving Thalberg and said, like, you gotta, like, distinguish me from from her. So they had several different tactics and you know by the end of the year though she was in love with Irving Thalberg and they got married in the middle of 1927 and were married up until he died and which was not that much longer but it allowed her to like her marriage allowed her to you know be part of the inner circle of the you know producers and the you know and the executives which you know, for obvious reasons, people, other actresses sort of complained about that because <laughs> she yeah. had an obvious edge. She... Oh, yeah. I did read something, a piece of trivia that I didn't mention. They were teasing the other actresses in the movie that if they wanted to get better roles or positioning, they should be cozying up to her, not the director. 
Oh, because she oh, had right. better pull than That's other right. people did. <laughs> no. um, yeah. So Thalberg died in 1936, and like I said, she she got the studio to continue paying compa- paying to his estate all the money that was owed in terms of like royalties. So she she got this lawyer, but also threatened to take the story to the gossip columnists. Eventually, the estate got more than a million dollars in these like small percentage payments that were took place over the course of her career. She she did appear in a number of other movies from 1936 to 1942. Generally, she did she didn't work as much, and she wasn't as happy in the roles that she was in. And they she made some poor choices in terms of you know what she actually wanted to be in. Hindsight says that they were poor cho- choices because yeah. like, they were movies that went on to be fairly successful. But she ended up retiring from film in 1942 was just about the time that Greta Garbo retired from film, so she <laughs> was still, like, competing with her. And she basically stayed out of the limelight for the rest of that time. She got married again and then died at the age of 80, almost 81, from pneumonia. So she lived a good long life. She is the She was the first person to receive five Academy Award nominations for acting. And um, her brother was a... He worked in sound, and they were the first Oscar-winning... Win- siblings in Hollywood, which is kind of exciting. The Canadians are really proud of her, so she gets honored periodically as being a Canadian in Hollywood, even though she she lived most of her life in L.A. Once a Canadian, always a Canadian. That's right. So yeah, tell me about the person you bioed. I bioed Rosalind Russell. That's right. I mean, it was... It was hard to choose because there were so many... Because there are 130 women in this movie. (laughs) Not many of them had we done anything on before so so she also went by her middle name Mm. Catherine Rosalind Russell she was born in 1907 she's American so sorry Canada (laughs) she's famous for being an actress comedian screenwriter and singer and known for her role as fast-talking newspaper reporter Hildy Johnson in His Girl Friday which came out in 1940 also for her portrayals of Mame Dennis and Auntie Mame and Rose and Gypsies so she was also um, um, a musical star, which I didn't know. Oh, um, really? I find interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that about her. I think I've seen. I think I've seen parts of Auntie Mame. I don't think I've seen all of it. I think. Well, I have the soundtrack I have of Mame is the Angela Lansbury cast. So oh. I, I think I didn't know. Yeah. But at, but I I think she'd be great. Uh, obviously, she was. I'm sure she was great in that role. Uh, she was born in the middle of seven children, and she was named after the SS Rosalind. <laughs> as as you um, are, I guess. Yes, as one is. Um, she received a Catholic school education and then went on to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York and told her parents she was going to become an acting teacher, but really she wanted to be an actress. Sure. In 1934, she had some stock company work and a little Broadway experience, and she tested with Universal, and they signed her. And then MGM simultaneously tested her and made her a better offer. So she pretended like she was ignorant of how these contracts worked, and even wore an outfit that made her look like 
kind of a bumpkin and then Universal released her so she could sign with MGM and she was with them for seven years. Wow. (laughs) So another savvy businesswoman. I was going to say, a couple of badasses. So for a while she was mostly in secondary roles and I thought this was interesting. She was the replacement threat to limit Myrna Loy's salary demands. <laughs> so, like, you could see that they have a similar look. So yeah. they'd be like, oh, well, we'll just replace you with her. But honestly, could you pay Myrna Loy enough? I don't know. No, I mean, if she were still alive, I would be giving her all the money I have. <laughs> yeah, all the money. <laughs> um, Russell tested five times for the role of Sylvia Fowler in The Women. She, in the end, she got it by playing her as a freak. And in addition to her fame as a comedian, she was known for playing character roles, especially wealthy, dignified, ladylike women. And she was one of the few actresses of her day who regularly played professional women like judges, reporters, and psychiatrists. And her like professional women roles started with her as Hildy Johnson in His Girl Friday. Yes. I think um, we're going to have to do that movie soon. Oh, we, we have. It's worth... I feel like it's that's such a classic. We have to do it. Yes. In her 40s, she returned to the stage and she toured with Bell Book and Candle and won a Tony for Wonderful Town in 1953. Um, and then she did Auntie Mame on Broadway and then did the movie version. Um, so she, her career spanned from the 1930s to the 1970s. And she attributed her longevity to the fact that although she usually played classy, glamorous ladies, she never played a sex symbol oh so sure i think it's kind of sad that that's the way she felt about it but i guess she felt less limited in her acting roles because she didn't have to always be like living up to that expectation yes exactly so that's her and she's great yay Rosalind russell um should we get into it about the women yes so I think I suggested this movie, right? Possibly. Or did you suggest it? I, I don't remember. I have had never seen this movie before, so I wasn't sure what we were getting into. And Yeah, I I hadn't either. And like I think I think that I suggested this because I was like, what's a what is a movie that will have like a lot of strong female roles and pass the Bechdel test? Yeah. So can we address this immediately? This movie doesn't <sighs> this movie does not pass the Bechdel test. This is an all female cast and it does not pass the Bechdel test because the entire movie all they do is talk about men and their relationships. Yes. It, like, there are no men on screen, but this movie is just about men. <laughs> the only part of the movie that I thought possibly could pass, and I don't know if... I mean, it just doesn't pass, but, like, some of the fashion-y scenes sure. where they talk about the clothes, but that's not super empowering either. <laughs> no. I mean, there are, like, you could say... I, I appreciated that, that Mary Haynes, Norma Shearer's character... At the very beginning of the movie, she's she has this. Speaking of clothes, she has she's wearing pants and she is riding on a horse with her daughter and she's carrying this camera and she's like she gives the appearance of like having her life in control and she's you know sort of fun and, and spunky and you know racing up and down the stairs and you know rolling around with her her kid and just, you know, like, self-possessed seeming. And she's wearing pants. (laughs) But that only lasts so long. I mean, I guess you, like, I also appreciate that she she goes against her mother's advice and says, like, you know, I don't want to be treated this way when she discovers that her 
husband is having an affair, goes and gets a divorce and, you know, trusts that her daughter will understand when she's older. But then, like, the end, the end of the movie, she <laughs> goes back to him. The central message of the, and this... And it's not something that's, like, on an individual basis of, like, sometimes someone in a marriage strays. It's very, like, male-female. And it's like, hey, your man's gonna cheat, but you need to forgive him. Right. It's and all keep going yeah. back to him. And if you get a divorce, it's your fault because you didn't stay behind and fight for him. And I was just like, oh my god, this is a horrible message. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a woman's job to manage her husband. <laughs> like... He's an adult. <laughs> First off, can we talk about the menagerie yes. credits, the um, opening credits? Yes. I have a question for you, which is okay. something that I was thinking about as I was watching this, which was, I was curious if you could identify all of the uh, dog breeds that are in the opening credits. Because I don't, uh, I could not. <laughs> and I'm not no, ex- I don't think so. <laughs> There were a lot of felines, too. That's true. And a horse and a cow, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty mean. I, mean, I could, That's the other thing about, like, the overall themes of this movie is it's basically that this is just how women are, and right. they're catty, and they're fighting amongst each other, and they're pretending to be friends, but they're really stabbing each other in the back. And, I mean, that's established from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and even Mary in the end, right, is kind of setting up people for their death. Like, she's playing the game, too, and she's kind of supposed to be one of the more moral characters. <laughs> right. At the end, in order to get her husband back, she sets up Sylvia and Crystal for heartbreak. And doesn't, like, and her other friend, too, the, um, the Countess that she meets yeah. in Reno, she just doesn't care that in order to get her husband back... She has to reveal to this other woman that her husband is having an affair with Crystal. That's just played for laughs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, we re- your marriage is ruined. Ha ha. That's okay. <laughs> it's fine. I did like all of the technology in this movie, starting with the camera that that Norma Shearer's character has at the beginning that she, you know, takes the movie of her daughter on the on the horse. And then, you know, there's references to taking the movie to, to the camera to Bermuda. And that whole scene with the the fashion show is actually, you know, on on screen for the women that, you know, the characters that we're watching. Like they're watching a recorded version of it. So I liked that technology, and I also liked all of the, all the stuff that happens on the phone, where, you know, Mary's on the phone to her husband, and Crystal's on the phone to her, to her lover, Mr. Haynes, and then is on the phone with her, you know, the boyfriend that she's, or the guy that she's cheating on her then husband with. It was just, like, such a, such a cool way to have them interact with these male characters that aren't on, on screen, and yet also, like, showed... I mean, that's hard to do, to, like, interact with a person who doesn't actually exist on the phone. Yeah, yeah I made notes about that, too, that the telephone plays such a big role in this movie, and you only see the one side of it. And there's a lot of really good face acting mm-hmm. as they yes. show them talk. Although, I will say that 
Joan Fontaine as Peggy when she has that emotional conversation with her husband who she was going to divorce, like telling him she's going to have the baby. I thought she was not very good on the phone. No. Well, and that, to me, I mean, yeah, I agree that 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 sort of showed just how good the other the others were on the phone. Oh, yeah. Norma Shearer was great. And also, she just has a wonderful voice. Mm-hmm. Like, it's her Canadian thought, accent. It must be. And she kind of had like a... A deeper voice. Mm-hmm. It just, it was great. I was riveted by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did it strike you at all, like, especially in the early scenes where Mary's, like, riding horses with her daughter and the dogs are all jumping around and she's at her estate? It kind of reminded me of the Philadelphia story mm-hmm. a bit. Like, she was striding around in her pants, and Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, yes, we're fresh-faced and athletic, but we also have our giant estates, and at night we dress for dinner. Right. (laughs) Or lunch. For lunch we dress for (laughs) lunch. Yes. I mean, I guess that's not too surprising, because it is the same class. Yeah. I mean, these people were, like, ridiculously... I mean, that salon. That salon was, like, bigger than... Bigger than a mansion. Like, they would just had, like, r- empty space. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. In Manhattan, it's fine. And, and of course, like, you know, I was watching it going, oh, if I had access to a spa like that with a personal trainer who would just, like, make me do these exercises, like, I also probably would be as rail thin as, as Rosalind Russell. Yeah. What was that... I just was fascinated by all the weird things that were happening at that salon yeah. slash spa. And did you see the one person was like hooked up by a ma- hooked up to a machine by their mouth, oh, yeah. like in passing? And what? And I was like, what is that? Yeah, yeah. What is like a history of not quite history of medicine, but like history history of beauty that I just wanted someone to like go through and say like these are all the things that they're doing and why they thought that might work. Yeah. I thought it was a little sad, like, the even though it was sweet how close the mother and daughter were, that the mother, Mary, was, like, so adoring of her husband, mm-hmm. which they show from the very early scenes. And then it's, it's clear also that the daughter, Mary, is, like, trying very hard to please her father and get his attention, yeah. too. And I was like, oh, no, she's mirroring the mother, and, like, this is how it happens. Yeah. Passed down through the generations. Yeah. And, you know, it, it struck me, too, that, you know, there are the scenes with Mary and her daughter, but also Mary and her mother, and her mother is giving her ad- the advice that is exactly opposite to what she does. And... And decides to do related to her marriage. I mean, her mother is the one who says, like, you know, when your father cheated on me, I just ignored it. And, you know, and she's floored to discover that her father cheated on her her mother. And um, so it's sort of funny that she, like, she appears to be doing something different from the rest of her family, but she really isn't. Everybody is just all about the man. (laughs) It's so sad that at that time, that's how it was. Then, like, if you divorced your husband, like, you were in a really difficult position and they could just go marry their mistress or do whatever. Mm-hmm. The same and, day that their divorce goes through in Reno. Yeah. Just, it, I just thought it was really sad. Yeah. Overall. And it reminded me of um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which was a little bit later, but it was, you know, that's that Amazon series. But if the woman gets a divorce, she's stuck with the kids. She's less appealing 
because she's older and used and then the husband just goes on and does whatever and is like basically unaffected by it. Mm-hmm. It's not at all fair. It's sad. You could only, I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, you could see why the mother would say, like, oh, just ignore it and keep your comfortable life. But it made me so mad that she said that. Yeah. But then on the other hand, there's Sylvia, Razzle and Russell's character, there are several moments where she's, she's insisting to Joan Fontaine's character, you know, you need to keep your own assets. You need to make sure, like, our only protection as married women is to make sure that we're in charge of our own income. Which I thought was, I was surprised that that would come up in a movie of this time. That someone would be blatantly saying, you know, like, keep your money. (laughs) Don't, 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 don't. Don't, go, don't give your husband control over your money that you earned. I think the reason why Peggy, that character, leaves her husband is because she wants to buy herself a car and her husband won't let her buy a car because he can't have a car. And so he doesn't think that she should be able to buy a car because he can't afford to buy one. It was sort of the flip side of that, of here's this like fairly progressive woman. So on the slide, giving her, her friends financial advice. She was horrible in other ways, but I also thought she was right about that. And But then the movie, I mean, that character of Peggy in the end, her conclusion when they get back back, back together is, I'll always do whatever John yes. says now. I know. And then uh, Mary says, good girl. Yeah. It's <laughs> fine. I was like, what? It's totally fine. <laughs> oh, God. Can we talk about the stuff that happens in Reno? Yeah, the Reno scenes were really interesting, weren't they? Yes. I mean, starting with the proprietor of the ranch is a woman who is kind of off her rocker a little bit. But I guess because of the conceit of this movie that there are no men, she has to do all these things. And the Countess goes uh, goes out on horseback in, in jeans and boots and this, like, fantastic hat. You know, and there's, there's, they're just all, like, st- like, strapping and, like, sharing the workload. Even though they're all supposed to, like, why are they all staying at this ranch? I guess they're all just staying to wait for their divorces. Like, it must be you have to stay there, like, a file mm-hmm. and then stay, like so many days in case you change your mind. Yeah, something. but, like, why are they at the ranch and not at, like, a fancy hotel? Is Are there no fancy hotels in Reno? Yeah, I don't... That part was unclear to me. I don't know if they were, like, hiding out to try to keep a lower profile, but that they never established that. Yeah. Um, unclear. I did love all of the cowboy cosplay that was going on with all totally. of these society ladies who all of a sudden were, like... I'm going to wear a cowboy hat. I'm going to wear plaid. I'm going to wear... Yeah. I loved... There's one scene when Mary goes to lay down. Yes. And she lays down, like, in a plaid bed with a plaid Uh coverlet. And there's plaid wallpaper. Mm -hmm. And she's wearing a plaid shirt. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Plaid for days. I kept watching all the scenes with the animals, obviously. And I felt really bad for the horse in the scene where Sylvia... And Miriam fight, and then <laughs> Sylvia accidentally hits the horse. <laughs> no. I'm like, no, don't hit the horse. <laughs> yes, but I love, I kind of love that fight because because Sylvia says to Miriam, "Don't hit me. I'm wearing glasses." And Miriam rips her glasses off her face and says, "Well, now you're not." And then she slaps. Her. 
And I just, yeah. I as a glasses wearer myself, I identify with the fear. She wasn't afraid for her face. She was afraid for her glasses. Yeah, I mean, the struggle is real for glasses wearers. Yeah. Then there was some fighting and some horse hitting, none of which was good. But I thought it was interesting that the Mary character, she became friends with the Miriam character, even though she was basically one of those... She was someone who went and had an affair with a married man and then mm-hmm. married him, which was the same thing that happened to Mary. Right. But, like, it seemed like she was okay. Like, I did, the, the moral code was not clear, except if, like, the whole theme of the movie was you do whatever you have to do to keep your man. Right. And it kind of seemed like it was what they were saying. Like, everyone's just fighting over these men. Yeah. I mean, Miriam basically says that to, I mean, I think we mentioned this earlier, Miriam says to uh, Mary, you know, don't leave your your husband at, like, the deepest, like, the darkest moment of his life. You know, he's, he's really struggling, and you need to go back and take care of him. So I think, like, she's trying to impress on her this, like, moral code that she, like, used to believe in, then didn't, and now she regrets that she doesn't. I also love that she compared the husband having an affair to having smallpox. I know! I was like, smallpox is an involuntary disease, and this is him choosing to break her trust. (laughs) Yeah, this is not really what's happening. (laughs) And it made me sad how she was, like, so gaga over him. Yeah. When she clearly, I mean, she doesn't seem to have materially suffered from not, I mean, she has to move into a smaller apartment, but it's still... It's still ridiculous. Right. She still has a maid. (laughs) She still has multiple bedrooms. (laughs) It's only worse because she had it so good to begin with. Can we talk about the Crystal character? Oh, yeah. I guess we should. Because one thing I thought was interesting about this movie was that she was painted really as entirely a villain. Like, I was kind of expecting they would show... Like, this could have been spun a different way as, like, like, look at how terribly society's set up that all these women are fighting over these resources because they don't have, like, other options and this is their main way of getting ahead. Yeah. But it wasn't set up like that. It was just, like, she's a gold digger and she doesn't like this guy. She's just using him for his money and Mm -hmm. like that was just very clear throughout and I was like you couldn't have made her a little bit more nuanced right like just a little bit more sympathetic we just hate her which I wonder if that's part of the code that they because she so obviously broke up a marriage she had to be entirely hateful like I wonder I don't know what I you know at some point we should go and read the code yes she was really funny, though. I liked the scene where she was on the telephone mm-hmm. with him, and she was saying she would make a meal, and then her shop workers were, like, making fun of her and I know. saying she doesn't know how to cook or do anything. <laughs> I know. So great. <laughs> oh, my God. And then in the end, her downfall was, like, when it, you know, she lost this round because she lost the husband, and the guy she was having an affair with didn't have any money. <laughs> and so she great. said, well... <laughs> Back to the perfume counter, and it's kind of like, well, this is your only option. Yeah. Try not being a jerk. And Yeah. I think she was supposed to be a younger woman, but once again, I didn't think she looked any younger than Mary. Yeah, and Mary has to be, you know, she has to be old. She has to be at least 30. <laughs> because yeah. she has, you know, this 
you know, ten-year-old daughter. Um, can we talk about the bathroom scene that went on for quite a long period of time where Crystal's in the tub? Yes. Where Crystal's in the tub and, like, three-quarters of the way through the, the tub, I realized that you, it was transparent. The, the bath was transparent and you could see the outline of her leg and her feet and her toes. Oh. And I was like, what is, the why, how does... How does this pass the code? Maybe they didn't notice. <laughs> Maybe. It seems like something Catholic bishops would notice. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, it was funny that well, that, like, that, that, it was sort of a two-part scene with two different people coming in and talking to her while she's in the tub. Yeah, who just has people come in when you're taking a bath? I, like, I don't want anyone to come in when I'm taking a bath. No! I mean, she has the maid, which I was like, all right, maybe you're just one of those people who's comfortable with the help being, like, everywhere. Yeah. But then when she has her stepdaughter come in, I was like, this is highly inappropriate. And she keeps trying to leave. And, like, there was a part of me that was fearful that she was going to, like, try to kill, like, do something. I know. know. It's going to take a horrific turn. Yeah, it could have. She seemed like... With those arched eyebrows, I was like, what is going to happen? <laughs> She's evil. Sylvia comes in, and it, it, I thought it was interesting how they became friends, because I've seen friendships materialize like that, where it's like two people are kind of backstabbers, mm-hmm. and then they stick together because... Because they're both terrible like, people. Yeah, basically, but they have no true loyalty to one another. Mm-hmm. And that seemed exactly how this was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of uh, couple of winners. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Can we just say that Rosalind Russell's clothes were the best? I mean, if by best you mean the most ridiculous, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the turbans crazy. and the scarves and the like looking at her clo- her clothes made me realize that I don't know the names of any of the clothes that she was wearing except for turban, fascinator, scarf, <laughs> shawl, <laughs> hood. Um, yeah, she her, she had all kinds of like accoutrement like the veils and um that one blouse she had that had the eyes on it (laughs) which was that was super that was like a like a dolly type thing um and her hats reminded me of that royal cousin yes who wore the crazy hat Mm -hmm. to the royal wedding yes yeah very um, outlandish and, like, out to make a statement. Um, and I really loved that in the final scene where Mary goes to try to get her husband back, she wears this, like, gold outfit with, like, a cape. I know. Like a superhero. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Well, and, like, when when there's a scene, like, much before that, when Crystal and Mary are in dressing rooms in the dress shop that are across the hall from each other. And that's when Mary confronts Crystal and says, you know, I know that you're having an affair with my husband, the juxtaposition of their two dresses that they're trying on, you know, Mary is wearing this, you know, beautiful, full, dark colored gown that looks very regal and very 
sophisticated and very, you know, it's fancy, but in a, in a subdued kind of way. Like, it looks like she's off to, like, meet the queen. And, and then Crystal is wearing this, like, drapey cape thing and this short skirt in, you know, that's short in the front and this turban that it's, like, clearly makes her out to be, like, you know, vampy and, you know, morally reprehensible. (laughs) So it was an interesting use of fashion to be like, here's what we really mean about these two characters. Well, and you know there was a remake of this movie. I want to say it was, like... It was in 2008. It was in 2008, and I know this because when I got this movie out of the library, what I accidentally ordered was the 2008 version with Meg Ryan. No. So I went to start to watch a movie with Norma Shearer and Rosalind Russell, and instead I got Meg Ryan. So. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a slight downgrade. I mean, I like Meg Ryan, but... Yeah. But in that version of the, the, that remake, they have the dressing room scene, but they're trying on, like, high-end lingerie. So the Meg Ryan character is in, like, a white, corset outfit thing and then Eva Mendez who plays the perfume counter girl is in like a black one so it's very like good versus evil but we're all wearing lingerie and we're gonna have a fight <laughs> sure <laughs> mine what did you think about the fashion show that they watch oh my gosh the, I, the that six or seven minutes part. part. <laughs> it was it was so great I loved it I read that in a lot of later versions of the movie that they cut that mm-hmm. scene out. Yeah, cuz George Cukor thought, didn't like it. Well, it doesn't do anything for the plot. No. But it reminds me of the scene we use our clip from Singing in the Rain. Oh, right. There's a scene in that that's very similar. It's like a live action fashion show where they're like pretending that they're doing normal activities, but it's totally staged and crazy. <laughs> no, they're they're quote unquote playing tennis. Yeah. Oh, I loved how they were like, note our innovation of natural movement. And they're all like holding their arms at weird angles and doing strange things. That's right. They're very futuristic. and But really, they're just really drapey <laughs> and can't move. Um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. All the hats. The hats alone yes. in that fashion show. Yes. I dare anyone besides Rosalind Russell to wear one of those. Yes. Well, and one of the hats was was sort of this. It was like a cross between a turban and a fedora that had like it was kind of clear. I have I have no idea what they would have made it out of, but it was sort of it was the clear like fedora dome. But then it was sort of like a yellow. In my memory, it was some like mustard colored turban that this model war with I think a couple of different outfits and all the whole time I was like what what is that supposed to do for you I do not know <laughs> yeah there were a lot of wild hats in this movie but yeah I love the fashion show I was just transfixed by it I didn't even realize that we had switched into color until after it went back to black and white I know me neither it was amazing I missed seeing you know Norma Shearer and Rosalind Russell, but otherwise, you know, in that seven or eight minutes or however long it, that is, it was surprisingly enjoyable. Yes. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. About the social justice aspect. Um, I don't know if this qualifies as social justice, but I do have a a, cla- a question about class in this movie. Okay. Which is that the movie 
begins with, you know, these, you know, upper crust women being upper crust women, but part of that is going to the manicurist, and they obviously look down upon the manicurist, and the manicurist is, you know, played for being, you know, lower class. She has a different speech pattern, a different way of referring to things. She's very clearly, like, juxtaposed to these, like, upper-class women that we're supposed to identify with and, like, sympathize with. So we're sort of, like, taught, you know, like, don't, don't like this manicurist, except for this entire movie is, it is launched on the idea that, sh- that Sylvia gets some information from this low-class manicurist and believes it immediately, you know, and it, tr- like, yes, of course, it turns out to be true. So she can't, she doesn't like her, but she, like, believes that she's telling the truth. Which seemed weird to me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, basically that's the action that leads to the whole unraveling of the marriages and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think you I think you have a good point that she plays an important role, but she is also treated like trash because she she's a wor- I mean, you the only working people you see in this movie are like her Crystal and, like, the other shop girls, and then the servants in Mary's house. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of treated as ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Or they're just, so, I mean, there's that great scene, you know, to get around the fact that we can't see Stephen Haynes because he's a man and this movie has no men in it. The The fight is relayed from one maid to the other. You know, like, the maid that overhears it goes and yeah. tell. And, and, and so that's sort of a, like, upstairs-downstairs like depiction of of what happens to sort of go in with this or the conceit of the movie where there are no men but it also you know showed you know that the these two working women you know in their part of the house that like looks just like my house <laughs> oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think it's very flattering to the lower classes and it's kind of there's a subversive message in this which is that you know these are all smart women Mm -hmm. and they're from very wealthy backgrounds or have married into wealthy families and they have nothing to do so like they're channeling all their energy into just gossiping about each other and fighting each other yeah if only they if they if only they could you know get good jobs that kept them interested and (laughs) they and were allowed to work and (laughs) <laughs> then they this movie wouldn't exist. <laughs> exactly. So subversive social justice message, women at work? I don't know. I don't think it's intentionally there. No, it's like subtly <laughs> feminist in a way, but it doesn't actually pass the Bechdel test, maybe? Yeah. I mean, the whole premise of this movie is that it's fun to watch women catfight over men. Right. That's the entire... That's why this movie was made. Yeah, I take it back. Not feminist at all. Um, and I... I mean, that's one of my personal pet peeves is when people talk about women being catty and mm-hmm. backstabbing and making drama because that is not my experience of... Women in my life are not like that. And right. I hate that stereotype. Yeah, I mean, women don't have to be like that. And maybe it's just that they don't have to be like that anymore. But yeah, you're right that the the women that we know are like they would never do something like this. Or like if I was at the if I was at the manicurist, which that's a big stretch. But if I were at the manicurist and the manicurist <laughs> was like, "Hey, did you hear the like the wife of this like fancy guy is getting duped by her husband who's having an affair?" I would be like, "Hang on, I gotta go. I gotta go take care of my friend." Or I would, I hope that I would be like that, and I hope that most of the women I know would be like that. 
But of course, all the women yeah. I know have, like, interesting jobs. So. <laughs> <laughs> or at the very, like, you would be like, hey, stop telling that story. That's my friend. Yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or if you, even if this is, like, based in fact, stop talking. Don't tell anyone else the yeah. story. I mean, there were, I, I appreciated the relationship between Mary and her mother and Mary and her daughter. I liked that, you know, that there were those enduring conversations about, you know, whether a, a daughter or whether a mother loves her husband more or her daughter more. And, you know, it was very clear that Mary says, you know, it's entirely different. And it's clear that she, she like, she's more, she is... For as much as this movie is about, you know, winning her husband back, she does really care how it affects her daughter. And it's true that her mother cares about her daughter as a person and as her daughter rather than just as, you know, the wife of, of a man. Yeah, that is true. And I love that she made up the, like, she, she was like, you should tell your husband that you need to take me to Bermuda because, you know, I have this cold that won't go away. She totally, like, says, use me as an excuse to get, you know, take some time away. My mom yeah. did that <laughs> for me. Yeah, I thought that was nice that she did that. Yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. He already said doesn't pass the Bechdel test, so nope. sorry that this was my effort to get a more <laughs> feminist movie, and I chose poorly. Um, I think it demonstrates the need for nuance, that just because it's all women doesn't mean that it's a pro-woman movie. Exactly. There you go. It's my spin. What, so, what rating would you give this movie, Emily? That's really hard, because... Because this was all about everyone trying to get their man and, like, fighting over men and backstabbing, it's not really, like, I don't enjoy that kind of thing that much. So I, it's not a movie that I would rewatch. Like, I liked a lot of the, like, little in-the-moment comedy stuff. Like, I loved about the Jungle Red Nails mm -hmm. and, like, all of the Rosalind Russell craziness. I feel like I would give it a two and a half. The performances were really good, but I didn't enjoy it very much. Yeah, I think I agree. Well, the, what I liked best about this movie was that it was all of these actresses in one place. And they were enjoyable to watch on screen together, even if they were not playing characters that were that um, enjoyable themselves. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Two yes. and a half. Okay. Good. We're of accord. <laughs> That's right. I, I like when we're of accord. Yeah, me too. Sometimes it's like two and five, and it's like, what happened? <laughs> Some backstabbing. <laughs> Do you remember what we agreed our next movie was going to be? It's The Treasure of Sierra Madre. It stars Humphrey Bogart, and we haven't done a Humphrey Bogart movie yet. Yes, and so we're long overdue, and I think we're swinging far in the other direction. I think this is one of those movies that has almost no women That's in it. Say, so. it'll, it won't pass the Bechdel we'll test because there are no women in it. <laughs> it's fine. We're trying really hard, guys. It's fine. All right. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.